Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to turn to Revelation chapter 3. Before we do that, though, you can get your Bibles ready for that. I want to talk a little bit about kind of what's going on in our country, at least a little bit, just so we can understand things from a biblical perspective and from a prophetic perspective. I think that's one of the hallmarks about Rock Harbor is we want to make sure you're aware of what's, what is a biblical worldview and how, how are we to look at things going on in our country, around the world, even from a prophetic standpoint. As you know, and I'll just start with the end goal of prophecy, the end goal of prophecy, according to the prophet Daniel, is that we're heading towards a one-world government. You already know about political pundits talking about globalists like George Soros and this and that. And right now, what you have to understand is that the United States is playing a pivotal role of being the only country, really, that stands in the way of a global government. A global government is of the devil, It is what Antichrist will rule the world with. So as a Christian in a biblical worldview, we are to resist globalism. We are to resist imperialism of having like the UN tell us what to do and uh, give us laws on U.S. citizens. That's called imperialism, but that actually is a part of the revived Roman Empire rearing its ugly head. And so we're seeing America stand in the gap to prevent this. But what is happening now is that the globalists want us removed, and they're doing everything they can to take us off the scene. Unfortunately, I have to break the news to you. The Bible doesn't talk about America. If anything, we are lumped in in the Gog and Magog war as the young lions of Tarshish. And when that happens, when Iran and Russia attack Israel... If we are one of those young lines of Tarshish, which I believe we are, we sit idly by and do nothing to help our ally Israel once they're attacked. We have something wrong with us. Something has happened to America. That great power, that, that prosperous nation that stood head and, and shoulders above every other nation somehow goes off the scene prophetically and is nowhere mentioned in the Bible. We sometimes wonder, how could that happen? What what, what would cause that? I think what we're seeing right now, and again, this is my speculation, so take it for what it's worth. The globalists are doing everything they can to destroy our country, to take us down. They're trying to create a civil war among Americans. And so you see this last week, you see these uprisings with these Antifa or Black Lives Matter, and you see neo-Nazis, which both groups are leftist organizations, totally off the scene. They call the Nazis alt-right. They're national socialist organization. They're leftists. You had leftists fighting leftists. And you think you've seen these rent-a-mobs with Ferguson, with Baltimore, and now you've seen them this last week in Charlottesville. And they're funded by George Soros and the globalists. And you think, what is this about? Is it really about statues of Robert E. Lee and the Confederacy and of that? What is this really about? No doubt everybody in here would agree that slavery was wrong. 
America is not pure. No nation has ever been pure. Even Israel had its problems. But you take a country as a whole and you look at it and you evaluate it on the whole. And on the whole, there's nothing has ever come close to America. Nothing. Because of our Judeo-Christian background, our Judeo-Christian law system, our constitution, nothing has rivaled the prosperity because of the free market system. Nothing has rivaled the freedom that America gave. And yet that's coming under fire. And how so? This... These arguments about these statues that they are taking down by these rena mobs, that's just the first step because they've been doing an education for a long time. What it is, what it's about, and you must see the bigger picture. This is not about slavery issues of taking the Confederacy down. This is a planned attack to bring America down in order to usher in globalism over the entire planet. We stand in the way. See, the players in this are the globalists, the leftists, the Marxists, the communists, the socialists, the progressives. They got the banking industries. They have the finance industries. They have the education and academia in America. They have the media on their side as well, the fake news people that continue to pump out lies and slander. You have the politicians that have been bought off. And you have the false religions involved in this. And you have the liberal church involved in this as well. There's a lot of players here. And so what's the attack? It's to attack the Judeo-Christian ethics and morality of America, to bring down our Constitution, to bring down the free market system, to bring down Christianity as a whole. Because what is holding up America is those Christian values. What's the strategy? To delegitimize, recharacterize, erase, distort, impugn our history and our founding as illegitimate, that America is nothing but a lie. That's their strategy, and a whole host of millennials believe this. They want us and people in America to forget history. You will, you will suffer the consequences if you do not know American history at this point in time. If Americans believe that America was founded and its foundations were unjust, that it's nothing but a bunch of racists, nothing but a bunch of imperialists, nothing but immoral people, homophobic, xenophobic, greedy capitalists, colonialists, then they're starting to to break down our foundations by a lie. So right now in academia, they're racing our history. You will not hear anything about the Judeo-Christian ethics. In fact, you will hear the opposite of gross immorality taught in academia. In fact, when you look in high school classes in history or even in college, they'll demonize America. I was telling my Sunday school class earlier today that when you, when you study World War II sometimes in some of these textbooks, they will only have us bombing Japan. Nothing about the Holocaust, nothing about Hitler, nothing about what was going on in the European theater, nothing but demonizing America for dropping the bomb. What is that about? Oh, by the way, yeah, Saudi Arabia funds the textbooks, just to let you know. The three major textbooks is funded by Saudi Arabia. Don't think this is not intentional. So attack the Constitution, attack our freedom, and bring in an imperialistic type of government to tell U.S. citizens what to do. 
That's all what this global climate change thing is that Al Gore keeps peddling that has no scientific background. A carbon tax. See, a one-world government needs a tax system and a tax base, and they're going to do it through carbon emissions, which actually help the environment, believe it or not. That's a form of imperialism. But what you're seeing now is a division happening in America. And Christians are getting caught up in it. They don't know how to read this. And it's happening through the media, happening through academia. And it's to cause us to scrap our history as racist, as xenophobic, as whatever, and start over with a new system. That's the end goal. I want you to know that because when you see Obamacare being forced on you that controls one-sixth of our economy, then you have a play against the free market system, which is based in a Judeo-Christian ethic of those who will not work don't eat. They don't like that ethic. Marx doesn't like that ethics, but that's from the Bible. And so you're going to see a continual aim at the free market system, aim at the Judeo-Christian ethics. You're going to see more of this if it's not stopped. I feel bad for these politicians that are trying to hold the line. They don't have anyone with them. The Republicans and Democrats both have been sold out. They've been bought off by the globalists. Oh, yeah, there's been backroom deals. You have to understand, why are these guys sitting on their hands letting it all happen? See, with globalism, you can't have borders. You you have to have unvetted immigration, illegal immigration, especially from Islamic countries. Look what happened in Europe. They've completely destroyed Europe with Islamic immigration. It's completely unvetted. Think about this, guys. You tell me. You have a terrorist in Barcelona, Spain last week, killing people, running people down with a car. The news programs did everything they can to explain this other than name what the problem was. Islam. You won't name it. You won't name it. Refuse to admit it. But it's because of that religion, it has destroyed Europe. You go to Europe today, you think you're in Pakistan. You think you're in one of these Islamic countries like Iran or Iraq. It's unbelievable what has happened, and the globalists caused it. I want to tell you that because perhaps we're watching prophecy happen in front of our very eyes. Perhaps exactly what Daniel said, that the world will one day go to a global government. If we're the last bastion of freedom that stands against globalism, what happens when we're gone? They've already said we're one election away from leftists controlling most of our politics. If that's the case, we are the generation possibly that could see the downfall of America. Not the, the lack of existence, but the lack of a power, the lack of a free market, and turn into nothing but a globalist type of country. Maybe. I don't know. I hope not. I don't want to be pessimistic, but I'm also a realist. I see what I'm seeing. So I tell you this, that when you see these rental mobs tearing down statues, it's bigger than what you think. It is a concerted effort to wipe out American history and to change it and to replace it with a globalist constitution. That's the end game.
I thought I would let you know that because if we're talking about prophecy, we're in the book of Revelation. We'll come and delve more into that when we get there. But I want to talk to you about this so you can understand the signs of the times that we're in. Okay, so now that you have your Bibles with you, let's turn to Revelation 3, 1 through 6. And this is actually part two of the church of Sardis, the dead church. The reason I split this up because there's two messages in this passage. One is to the dead church, those Christians who claim to be believers and are not. We, we studied that last week, and now we're going to look at the passage, that part of the passage that deals with Jesus talking to the remnant of the Sardis church. Now, remember, the Sardis church is, it, it, just to recall a few things, and it might be on your outline, Sardis means those escaping. So what we've looked at in the seven churches of the book of Revelation, they're in, in sequential order, and they're telling the story of the church age. Not only are the historical situations and that the Sardis church exists in, in different pockets and, and eras of, of church history, but it also represents that particular era of history between 1517 with the Protestant Reformation and the Peace Treaty of Westphalia between the Protestants and Catholics in, in 1648. That period of time is known as the Reformation period. It is characterized by what we're studying today, the Sardis Church. What is the situation in Sardis? They have an appearance that they're alive. They have good creeds and good doctrines, but they're dead. And just to refresh our minds, the reason they're dead is the state had married with the church in England, in Germany, in Sweden, and basically Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, all these guys did is create another fiefdom other than the Catholic Church to control the, the, the state that they were in. So they had state-run churches. So if you're a member of the state, you're automatically a member of the church, which created deadness. You had people in the church that were not saved. They called themselves Christians, but they were not saved. So Jesus' message to them or anyone else that's playing a game with him is, you need to be saved, or I'm going to leave you behind. Just to refresh our mind, let's read the text, what we studied last week, and then we'll branch out into what we need to talk about today. Verse 1, it says this, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before my God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, or basically the idea is get saved, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I come upon you. Now, I'm not going to unpack that because we did that last week, but the message is this to the dead church of Sardis, to the believers who think they're saved. You need to get saved, otherwise the rapture is going to happen and you're going to be left behind. You, won't, you, you need to watch. Watch is the idea of being saved. And if they're saved, then they're ready for him to return in the rapture. If not, they're not, and they're going to be left behind. The opposite is true for us. Now let's bring it to our table. We as believers, the remnant of Sardis, the Protestant Reformation, believe in Jesus. We are saved if you have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. So... The admonition to us comes from Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I want you to see this. We have great joy and comfort in this. He says, But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write you to you. 
For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Right. We understand that. We just saw that with the church of Sardis. For when they say peace and safety, let me change the vernacular a little bit, what they're saying now, security and safety. If you type in on a search on the internet and type in security and safety, watch what pops up. That is the mantra of the globalist movement. I find that amazing. He goes, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. It's referring to the great tribulation coming upon them because they're going to be left behind. But you, brethren, talking to believers, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You see the opposite? Jesus will not come as a thief in the night to us because we'll know the time and season. We won't know the day or hour, but we'll know the time and the season because we see prophetically the table being set. He goes, you are sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor darkness, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I thought that was important to bring out for us as believers to know Jesus will not come as a thief in the night. He will come as a thief in the night to unbelievers because they're not watching. They're not ready. But we're watching. We're looking. We're looking at the sky, and we see the prophetic signs all over the place, a convergence of prophecies coming together, saying the time is close. I don't know how much time we have. All we can say is we're in that season, and that's as far as Paul wants us to go. Okay, that being stated, now we need to go into the text, but before we do, we have a little homework to do. As you know, when we're going through the seven churches of Revelation, I have told you before that one of the things you can do to get more information about these churches and these eras is to marry these seven churches with the parables in Matthew 13 about the mystery kingdom. Just to refresh our minds, Matthew 13 is Jesus giving the disciples what the kingdom is now going to look like now that Israel has rejected their Messiah in Matthew chapter 12. They committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and now they're going to be put in the time out, and Jesus starts explaining what the time period is going to be like. Now, if you take those parables in Matthew 13 in chronological order and you marry them chronologically with the seven churches in Revelation, they match historically in what was happening in the history. Very interesting. I want to show you this. The parable that goes with the church of Sardis is the hidden treasure in Matthew 13, 44. Again, this was during the Reformation, the Peace Treaty of Westphalia. It ended in about 1648, 1700s. It's the rise of the state church. The nation of Israel then has always been a treasure of God because in this passage... Matthew 13, Jesus gives this parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Now, when you hear the word a treasure, it always refers to Israel. Israel is the treasure of God. And he says, which a man found, and he took joy over it, and he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. So the idea here in this passage is, in order to save Israel, the treasure, the man buys the entire field, which means the entire world. So salvation is not only for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles. But the focus in on, on Matthew 13 is the hidden treasure of Israel. 
The nation of Israel has always been a treasure of God. It became a nation that was hidden during this time. Christ purchases the whole world in order to save the nation of Israel. Okay, how does this factor in to the church of Sardis? Sometimes people don't see the natural connection. Well, I can tell you how. You have to know church history. See, what happened is, and let me give you some background on this. The early church was primarily Jewish. And about the second, or even even later into the first century, Gentiles started coming in, and some of their leaders started becoming anti-Semitic. And so by the time you get into the third and fourth century, the church is thoroughly anti-Semitic. And that stays with the church. Augustine, Origen, pick it up, and they continue that thought pattern that the church has replaced Israel, the Jews of no account, God's done with the Jews, yada, yada, yada. And that stays all the way through buried all those years under the Catholic Church. And then the Reformation happens. Well, I hate to break the news to you, but a lot of the Reformers were anti-Semitic as well because they were nothing but priests who wanted to reform the Catholic Church. So they remained anti-Semitic as well. I have some quotes that will probably shock you, but these are from some of the Reformers, and I want to show you this. This is from John Calvin. God so blinded the whole people that they were like recidive dogs. I had much conversation with many Jews. I have never seen either a drop of piety or a grain of truth or ingeniousness. Nay, I have never found common sense in any Jew. Yeah, and these, this guy's a hero to a lot of people. Let's go to the next one. There, the Jews, rotten and unbending, stiff-neckedness, deserves that they be oppressed unendingly and without measure or end, and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. Yeah. See, that kind of language was going on with the Reformers. Martin Luther, I think I have a, a long quote from Martin Luther, believe it or not. What shall we Christians do with, uh, with this rejected and condemned people, the Jews? He said this, first set the fire to their synagogues or schools. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and of, the, of Christendom so that God might see we are Christians. Second, I advise that their houses also be razed and destroyed. Third, I advise that all their prayer books and Talmudic writings in which such idolatry lies and cursing and blasphemy are taught be taken from them. Fourth, I advise that their rabbis be forbidden to teach henceforth on pain of loss of life and limb. We'll kill them. And fifth, I advise that safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for the Jews, for they have no business in the countryside. Sixth, I advise that usury be prohibited to them and all cash and treasure of silver and gold be taken from them. Martin Luther. And I can go on and on and show you quotes from reformers constantly who are anti-Semitic. So what's the point Jesus is making with the parable in Matthew 13? Even though these guys were anti-Semitic, what started to happen now that the Reformers got away from the Catholic Church is proper interpretation started happening to the Scriptures. Some of the Reformers started reading the Scriptures as they're intended to be taken, literally. And when they started taking it literally, all of a sudden, a lot of the reformers said, whoa, wait a second. Prophetically, we see that God is going to restore Israel, that he is not done with his people. It was during this time, guys, and this is why the parable makes sense for the church of Sardis, that the rediscovery of God's plan for Israel came to fruition in a lot of theological circles. 
It was called the Theological Restoration Movement. And believe it or not, people start seeing the need for God's program with the Jews. And just to name a few people, Theodore Beza, Edmund Bunny, many of the Puritans, Thomas Bingham, Sir Henry French, uh, he was associate of Sir Francis Bacon. And I got a couple of quotes. I want to show you some of these quotes, like from John Owen. He goes, moreover, it is granted that there shall be a time and season during the continuance of the kingdom of the Messiah in this world, wherein the generality of the nation of the Jews all the world over shall be called and effectually brought unto the knowledge of the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, with which mercy they shall also receive deliverance from their captivity, restoration unto their own land, with a blessed flourishing and a happy condition therein. Now, I can, I, I'm not going to show any more quotes, but... I can show you constantly from the Puritans and some of the Plymouth Brethren and what started happening, they started seeing Israel, God using Israel once again in the future and that they would be restored before the second coming. That's why that parable matches this. It was the rediscovery of the nation of Israel per se. The hidden treasure was discovered. And you and I rest on the shoulders of those guys. If you're sitting here today and are pro-Israel and you see the prophetic use that God is going to use them in the future, then it's because of these guys laying the groundwork for it. Now, they didn't have all the details, but they understood God's going to use you, and they became pro-Semitic, which we are today. That's our roots and that came into colonial times of Cotton Mather, John Cotton, and then Jonathan Edwards, Ezra Stiles at Yale, believe it or not, and, and, and all kinds of voices. I do that just to show you that's when it started. And now here we are in 2017, and we're resting on that work that they did. Well, that brings us to the point that we want to get into. It's the application for us. It's the message to the remnant church within Sardis that Jesus has a message. And that's point number five on your outline. Jesus promises the remnant believers rewards for works and deeds of righteousness. That's on your outline. For works and deeds of righteousness. Let's exegete the passage, and we'll start in verse 4. He goes... To the remnant, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. That's you and I. That's the remnant of the Protestant movement, okay, who have not defiled their garments. Now, let me make a historical connection, because so I want you to unpack what does he mean by these believers have not defiled their garments. Perhaps it has to do with Sybil. Uh, maybe Jesus is using something in that town of Sardis that they all knew about. When Pagans went to worship Sybil, and this was one of their gods. They had to make sure they came with clean linen, white robes as they went to worship this pagan deity. Perhaps Jesus is using this imagery to say, just like the pagans do, there's people here that have not spotted their garments. You couldn't go before these deities spotted. Now, that was just outwardly. Because inwardly, these pagans were as rank in the morality as you can possibly imagine. They were defiled, even though they were wearing white garments. But Jesus is using that perhaps in the historical note for them to relate to that. But also, it's a biblical thing. 
We get the idea of this idea of believers being spotted in their garments or defiled from James. James talks about this, and this is James one twenty seven. I want to show you this. He says, he's talking about pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and this is the last phrase I want you to capitalize on, to keep oneself unspotted from the world. That's what Jesus is intending here. Now, this idea of pure and undefiled religion, pure means that it's the standard, the Word of God. The undefiled has to do with the quality, and the religion has to do with the practice of Christianity. Basically, what James is saying and what Jesus' point here is this. If the believers will follow the Word to the T, and they do works of service of their Christianity, their practice of it, it will be undefiled because they're obeying the Word. The way it gets defiled is if a Christian mixes worldly practices into his or her Christianity. That's how one becomes spotted. Now, it's not talking about sinless perfection. It's talking about picking up practices from the world. Well, flush this out a little bit, Brandon. Help me understand what Jesus is talking about. He is saying that those who are believers, you must protect yourself from becoming like the world. How so? Well, being free of the moral pollution, the moral corruption. Do you and I act like the world? Do we behave like the world? Because if our actions mirror them, then we are defiled. We are spotted in that sense. Are we free from theological pollution? I think today in your handout, we gave you a book about mandalas, right? To warn everybody about that. If you go into any store, they're selling around the counters these coloring books. And it typically, it's focused in on these mandalas, these circle patterns where you color them. That's actually a, a, a Hindu practice where you color and blank out your mind, and then you let the gods speak to you. Well, now that's been infused into Christianity and people practicing mandalas in Christianity. That's a foreign religion being introduced into the practice of Christianity. That's a problem. That's being polluted. Or how about our worldview? Have you met Christians that claim to be Christians? And you say, you know what, Brandon, I I believe they're really Christians, but they have incorporated worldly views. They're socialists. They're Marxists. Their mindset is all wrong. They don't think straight. And you think, what happened to them? Well, it's because they've become polluted. They've bought into the politics and the leftist anti-God movement. They're practicing immorality. And in their religion, they're allowing pagan religions to enter Christianity. The believer can become defiled and polluted. Do you remember the conversation Jesus had with Peter... The night before he was crucified. And you remember Jesus started washing their feet. Remember that scene? Part of the Passover. And he was teaching them an issue of service nonetheless, but he was teaching them another issue. And remember Peter said, don't, don't wash my feet. I would never have you do that. And he goes, if you, I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. Jesus was talking about fellowship when he said that to Peter. He rebuked him. And then Peter goes, well, then wash my whole body. And Jesus says, I don't need to wash your whole body. You guys are clean. All I need to do is wash your feet. It was a spiritual lesson about defilement. 
Peter and the other apostles were believers. But the metaphor is that as they walked through life, their feet picked up dirt and mud on their sandals and on their feet. And what they would need to do to keep fellowship with Messiah was to wash their feet metaphorically. And the way you do that is confession of sin in 1 John 1, 9. And the idea is we do pick up junk from the world. We sometimes like what they're doing, and we start incorporating into our walk. And that makes us defiled. That makes us spotted. Let me give you another illustration. We'll get to this in the book of Revelation when we get to chapter 7 and 14 about the 144,000. The 144,000 are like 144,000 Apostle Pauls evangelizing during the tribulation throughout the world. Can you imagine 144,000 Apostle Pauls? Wow. They can turn the whole world upside down. Well, anyway, it notes that they're without spot and blemish. And people sometimes read that, but they don't understand what's John trying to get at. It's the same concept. They're undefiled as Christians. They have no pollution from the world. They're theologically pure. They're morally pure. They're a clean vessel in the hand of God. Not perfect, but a clean vessel, unspotted, undefiled. The goal of every Christian is to be theologically pure and to be morally pure pure before God in order to be used of him. And therefore, we continue, and he says this, and there's a reward for this if you stay unspotted. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. Now, he's promising all of us If you don't allow your garments to be defiled and you stay clean, you're going to walk with me, fellowship, because you're worthy of that honor. And the idea of he who overcomes, those Christians who overcome this will be rewarded with this, with this special privilege. Now, not every Christian will get this. A lot of Christians will go to heaven and the smell of smoke will be on them. There's no doubt about it. They had a lot of the world. They were very worldly. They're saved. Nonetheless, but they will have no rewards because they live such a worldly life. That's his whole point. But I want you to see more of this reward. In Revelation 19, it talks about this a little bit more, about these garments. It says, and to her, the church, the bride, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is what? is the righteous acts of the saints. It is not an automatic that you get white linen from Christ who robes you in it because you're a believer. Only he who overcomes and does the righteous acts of the saints undefiled will get these white linen and can walk in fellowship with Jesus. Now, what are we talking about here? There's something bigger, and I want you to see it's, a, it's a, more of a practical application It has to do with our reputation in heaven. Okay? I'll come to that in just a second, but let's go back to the text and read more of this reward thing. And he says this, And I will not blot out his name from the book of life. The book of life contains every human being that has ever existed. They're written in the book of life. The only way they're taken out of it is because of unbelief. And he goes, but I will confess 
his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we want to unpack this a little bit. This text, if you don't understand what's happening here, the historical situation and the grammar, you might misunderstand it. The historical situation of why Jesus is saying this to them, this particular promise, your name's not going to be blotted out, I'm going to confess your name before my father, has to do with what was happening in Sardis. What was happening is in Sardis, if you were a registered citizen, your name was on the roll of that town. It was right there, and if you did something wonderful or heroic or whatever, they would actually etch your name in gold in Sardis on the rolls. But here's what happened, guys. They started seeing these Christians, and they're seeing the acts of these Christians. And, of course, just like what the world does, they hate Christians. They hated Jesus. They hate Christians. They started persecuting them. And one way to persecute them is they took them off the city's rolls. They took their name and blotted it out and removed it from the citizenship. So basically, these Christians in Sardis, who were doing nothing more than obeying Jesus, lost their citizenship. And if you lost your citizenship, you lost a lot of abilities to do business and commerce and all kinds of stuff. So basically, it hurt their financial situation. And so this is why Jesus is coming and saying, basically, I know they've taken your name off of their role, but you're on mine, and I'm going to keep you there. And I will confess your name before, the fa- before my father. That was a historical situation, but let's talk about the... the, the uh, language here and what Jesus is doing. The language that Jesus is employing and John is using is called the litotes. Now, what it is, is an affirmation expressed in negative terms. Let me give you an example of what John's doing. If I told you, you have no small problem, what does that imply? You have a big problem. And so the litotes that's being used that Messiah is saying, he's saying, it's not that you can lose your, your salvation. It's that, if I can phrase it this way, I'm not only going to keep your name on the book of life, which is an automatic for any believer, I'm going to go further than that, and I'm going to actually confess your name before my Father and before the angels and before everybody in heaven. I'm going to go further than your name just being on the book of life. I'm actually going to go further. That's what the Latotes is trying to say. Now, what is, what is this idea of confessing our name before the Father? It's a way of accolade, a special acknowledgement in heaven, a public recognition of us for our faithfulness and from not being spotted from the world. And folks, it's hard to sometimes understand this because it, this is a Middle Eastern Orient type of understanding. In the Middle East, and even in India or even in Asia, there is what's called a shame-honor culture. Very big on honor, right? Very big on shame. You don't do things that shame the family, right? You, you protect the whole. And that, that's, that's even according to Israel. They would never do anything to shame their own family or to, you know, to, they always wanted to bring honor to it. So in America, it's a little bit different. We don't have really a good grasp of that because we're so individualistic. But in their culture, it does. Okay, what does this mean? 
In a shame-honor culture, reputation is everything in a shame-honor culture. Reputation is everything. What people perceive of you is everything. Now, in those cultures, unfortunately, the backside is you might have a good reputation among people, but behind the scenes, everything's defiled. Everything's dysfunctional. But it's what you present, right? So that's a shame-honor culture. Okay. Jesus is using that to make his point. But here's the point. He's saying, I know you're going to lose your reputation with Sardis. Your name's going to be taken off the city rolls. No one's going to do business with you. They're going to call you hate mongers. They hated me. They hate you. You're going to lose your reputation with the world. But I'm telling you, you will gain a reputation with me. And if you gain a reputation with me, I will tell my father about that reputation. And all of heaven will know your reputation because it's going to come from my lips. That's where he's going with this. And that's where the application is. Now, you might have heard this, but the application of what Jesus is saying, he's already said before in another way. And the difference is it's between our reputation and reality. Jesus, in Matthew 16, is having an interchange with his disciples, particularly Peter. And let me bring you the context. It is at that point in time that Peter makes his statement that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of the living God. Now, you all remember that, right? Okay, this is the context. Then, after that, Jesus goes right into telling them I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer things from the elders of Jerusalem and the chief priests and scribes. They're going to kill me, but I'm going to be raised on the third day. Right after the confession, Jesus goes back right into that. And what did Peter do? You remember? It says Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Okay, shame, honor, culture, shame, honor, culture, context. The context is Jesus was telling them, I'm going to go to the cross. That was the most shameful thing the Jewish mind could imagine. Because not only was it shameful to be hung up on there, you were up there naked. You didn't have any clothing. You were put up there naked. And you could be up there for weeks depending on how the Romans crucified you. And also, it tied into their theology. Because in their theology, curses anyone who hangs on a tree, right? And so it, 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 Jesus is telling them, I'm going to go cru- crucified. It brought in this whole shame, honor culture into Peter's mind and the disciples. And this is why he's like, far be it from you. You can't do it. You're the Messiah. You can't have any shame put on you. And that's the context, because reputation is everything in the Jewish mindset. Reputation is everything in the Asian mindset or in the Indian mindset or in that part of the world. Reputation is everything. So Peter doesn't want Jesus to ruin his reputation. Now, 
I think we're going to have it on the screen. I want you to see what happens. Start in verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of things of God, but the things of men. So he sternly rebuked, and here's the discipleship issue for them and for us. This is not a salvation issue. It is a discipleship issue about something we're studying today. If anyone desires to come after me in discipleship, this is not a salvation. He's talking to disciples. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Pick up that shameful thing that will make you lose your reputation with the world. You see where he's going with this? It was a shameful thing. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, he goes, for the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with, with his angels, and he will reward each according to his works. So it's bracketed by discipleship issues. It's not a salvation issue. He is telling Peter, Peter, your problem is you won't identify with my rejection. You won't identify with my shame. Therefore, I'm asking you to lose your life. Lose your reputation with the world. Quit pandering to them. I'm going to go to the cross, and they're going to say I'm cursed. I'm going to lose my reputation with the world. And I'm asking you, Peter, to lose it as well and identify with a particular type of suffering. Most people read that passage and take up your cross. Well, it's my daily suffering. i got to get out of bed and go to work. I'm taking up my cross. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Taking up your cross means I'm identifying with the shame and rejection of being a Christian and having my reputation with the world maligned. That they're going to talk to me and say I'm the most hateful of people. That I'm homophobic. That I'm unloving. That I'm racist. That I'm whatever. Islamophobic. They're going to say everything about you and tarnish your reputation. He who loses his life, reputation, will gain it. How will we gain it? I will confess you before my Father. Because your reputation is pure. You did what you were supposed to do. And all of heaven will know your reputation. So don't worry what the world says, Peter. Accept and identify with me. Accept the shame. A lot of Christians won't do it. They will not do it. It's too much for them. There's too much at stake. Brandon, you don't understand. If I say something at work and get labeled a homophobe or a transgenderophobe or whatever you want to call it, I will not climb up the ladder. I could hurt my economic well-being if I start talking and sharing my Christianity. Okay. What reputation do you want to keep? Do you want to keep a reputation with the world? Or do you want to keep one with Jesus? It's your pick. 
But you know what a lot of Christians do? They stay silent because they don't want to lose their reputation with the world. They say, well, I'm trying to evangelize, and so I want to appear as a good old boy and a nice guy, a nice gal, and I just want to get along with everybody, and they commit the sin of silence. They are not taking up their cross because they don't want the shame. They don't want the reputation being hurt as a hate monger. Let me make another note. There's some Christians that try to do both. They try to have a reputation with the world, and they try to have a reputation with Jesus, and you think how that works out. They're miserable. They're miserable. Because you can't have both. You can't serve two masters, Jesus said, right? You either love the one and you hate the other. So you have a choice. I have a choice. Am I going to lose my life, lose my reputation among the world? So be it. But at least... Jesus will be pleased with me, and you'll confess that before my Father. Think about this, guys. This is very difficult. You have two reputations. You have two reputations, and right now you're going to be tested on that reputation. You're not going to be able to escape from it. You're going to be put into a corner, and they're going to force you to say what your views are. What are you going to say when they ask you about abortion? What are you going to say when they ask you about gay marriage or transgenders or whatever? What are you going to say about that? Silence? Well, I don't want to make waves, you know. I'm trying for a new promotion. Remember, the Sardis people had their names taken off the roll of citizenship, which made them lose their financial ability to make money. They lost everything for Jesus because they were despised and hated. What happens when they ask you about Islam? What happens when they ask you about, you know, other issues? How about Israel? Hey, what's your view on Israel? What if you hear someone becoming anti-Semitic? What if you see people talk about the social gospel? How about interfaith dialogues with false religions? You're going to be tested, man. It's coming. They're not going to let you stay silent. They will force you to take a side, and you have to prepare for that. What reputation do you want? Let me give a parting note about this. Jesus ends this in verse 6 as, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, not a physical ear, but an ear to hear that goes directly to the heart. He who has his ear, let him hear. Is this important to you, your reputation with Jesus? Or is it important to keep a reputation with the world? See, you have to come to grips at some point in your life that they're just going to hate you. They're going to talk behind your back. They're going to say all kinds of junk about you, and you're just going to have to take it. I know it hurts. It ain't fun. It's difficult, isn't it, when they lie about you or slander you or say all kinds of things about you. But Jesus said, blessed are you when they do this. You have a reputation, one with man, one with God. When you know you're living right is when you're getting a pushback from the world and them saying things about you. I know it won't be true, but that's when you know you're living right. If they're not saying anything about you, they're not slandering you, it's perhaps because... You just look like them. There's no difference. So why would they even come against you? Satan goes after the tallest nails. 
Satan goes after the ones making a stink. Satan goes after ones giving biblical morality. If you're not being attacked by Satan, then you're not no threat. Interesting enough, I'll end on this with this illustration about reputation. This is about the lead singer of a rock and roll band. Now, I will not tell you who the band is. If you want to come up after service, I'll tell you who the band is. But it serves as an illustration, so I don't want people to think I'm endorsing some rock and roll band thing. So anyway, I, just, I was reading this this week about reputation. I find this interesting. The lead singer had a reputation among people that he was a spoiled brat, that he, he just wanted things his way. He was a control freak. He was a prima donna. He was one of those rock stars that just thought he walked on air. And that was his reputation. And you know what? He was willing to live with that reputation because of something. Do you know why he had that reputation among people about being a prima donna? It's because in the contracts they signed with anybody that put on their show, he required them to take out all brown M&Ms out of the candy. Yes, I know it sounds crazy. In the contract, the venue was to supply M&Ms, and they needed to take brown M&Ms out of it for any time they came in the town. Now you think, wow, that's crazy. What you know, that is a prima donna. And just on surface, you would think, man, that's crazy. I, you know, of course, these rock and roll guys are prima donnas demanding that brown M&Ms be taken out of the candy dish. He had a reason behind it, and no one knew. Only the band and the crew knew why he had that. I'll tell you, I'll explain. Because he had a reputation with the band, and he had a reputation with outsiders. What was happening as they started touring... He noticed that certain venues would not pay particular attention to the details in the contract. And there was heavy equipment. They had nine big rigs that they traveled with, and they had to come up and set up the show. And, and a lot of times, they told the venue what they needed. And, I mean, it was real meticulous stuff. And if it didn't go right, what would happen sometimes, if they didn't set up right, things would fall down on the band members. One time, a stage collapsed on them, causing $85,000 worth of damage because they, the stage didn't have the weight limits on it or whatever. And so through trial and error, they came up with an idea. The lead guy in the band said, you know what we need to do? I'm going to stick in a clause in here to see if they are paying attention to detail. And the clause will, they're going to take the brown M&Ms out of the, the M&Ms. And sure enough, he said, if they do that, which is one of the last clauses, I know they have done all the other in the contract if they kept that meticulous of detail. And so they stuck it in the contract. And sure enough, they would go to a venue, and uh, the first thing he'd do is look in the green room and see if the brown M&Ms were taken out. One time he went in there, and they were still there. The M&Ms were there, but the brown M&Ms were still in the mixture. And he told the other band members, he said, hey, man, they didn't take the brown M&Ms out. I don't feel good about this. We need to scrap this. We need to shut the show down and stop this because they didn't pay particular attention to other details. I guarantee you. Sure enough, they put the show on. Things fell on the band members because they didn't secure them enough. They didn't pay attention to the detail. So from that point on, every time we'd go into a venue, it'd look, if the brown M&Ms were out, sure enough, the venue had taken care of every detail, and they had a smooth show. 
So my point about this is he was willing to have this prima donna reputation among people for the sake of saving his band from things falling on them and his crew being, you know, trampled by, you know, by things falling and a stage collapsing under their feet. He did it actually for the safety of his band members. And no one knew that until today, until it's all over. That's how we have to be. We have to just be settled with what the world thinks about us because we serve an audience of one. It's Jesus. And only his opinion of us counts. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.